0: to what are you reading last week we got to talk to our friend uh diana chavez about uh who worked for joe biden's campaign and uh and then black men's campaign here in uh here in georgia um we're in sort of a new political era and the powers that be here at the what are you reading podcast uh which would be me and tim and our uh our friend and pastor david park um have decided to focus on politics Uh, how people get mobilized, engaged, and how they think about power in their shared life. So that's going to be the focus of this, uh, podcast of the guests we choose, probably of a bit of what we talk about, uh, for the next couple episodes, uh, this week's guest, we're really excited to have her on. We've been, uh, hoping she would be on our podcast for a while now, and we finally made it happen. Uh, Tim, do you
1: want to intro her? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't, um. I echo exactly what Ian said. We've been really, really excited to talk with her. The executive director and founder of Latino Community Fund here in Georgia, Gigi Pedraza. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you guys for having me. This is exciting. And I love to read. It's my favorite thing. So, And this is <laughs> the first time I'm doing a post and I even look at the corner in here so that you see all my books.
1: I was going to say, I yeah. love that bookshelf there. I love that corner right there. <laughs> perfectly
0: placed camera. I was like, is that on purpose? Yes. (laughs) Well, uh, we've, we've found that when there are people who we really admire their work and not just particularly what they do, but sort of how they do it and how they talk about it, we can generally tell who reads And so I think we were looking at like your Facebook presence and how you talk about your work and what you do. And I was like, I bet she's a reader. (laughs) (laughs) So what type of stuff do you like to read?
2: I lived in China for three years uh, and I became really interested while I was living there in understanding the journey of women um and value placed in women in different cultures so I, lead, I I I love to read a lot of these stories on um you know journeys of women understanding themselves um and really perception right um so I love a lot of um Asian authors and particularly the story of Chinese women I actually love to read everything um how, in basically three generations or four generations, women went from having no name because we were not important enough to have a name. We were, you know, the property of the father, the first daughter, or second daughter to the property of the husband, wow. the first wife, to basically lose our identity of women during the Cultural Revolution to then lead and eventually become scholars, right? So how do you go from not having a name to developing unique knowledge with your name leading that literally in like two, three generations? You know, I love reading that. I love reading actually about the history of uh, African-American black communities uh, in the U.S. For the work that I do, I think it's it's critical that we understand history and how the Mm -hmm. same Labels and processes and work has been used to oppress people, all kinds of different people, right? Um, And that's what I'm reading mostly uh, these days. Um, I also love to read about the origin of things Mm. and like how things come to be. Uh, I love Barbara Kingsolver, for example, Animal Vegetable Miracle completely changed the way I look at food. And like my kids hate me because they know that, you know, we eat in season. So in fall, they'll eat squash, some type of squash every day and carrots and all of these things that you're supposed to eat in fall and as close as possible to where you live. So I, I like reading all kinds of things.
0: That's wonderful. Let, let's talk a little bit about your work because I think there's some really clear and rich connections between what you read and what you do with LCF Georgia. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came
2: to found that organization and uh, what
0: you're currently involved in there?
2: Sure. First of all, let me just say you know I I've been involved in the Latino community, immigrant community, in different capacities for probably. You know, over fifteen years. So I've been an executive, a volunteer, a contractor, a consultant, and really around two thousand fifteen, um, a lot a group of us, maybe ten people or eight people, that we all saw each other at our fundraisers. You know, in the community, and just you know saw each other and you know pay our hundred dollars to eat a chicken lunch that you know we all serve in fundraisers uh, became increasingly disappointed and and to a certain extent angry that we didn't see really the community advanced um, as fast as we thought and as influential as we thought we should be. Uh, And so really for a year and a half, we talked about this idea of funding an organization, literally funding it with our own money instead of paying the $100 for the chicken dinner, pulling together all of our $100 every month that we were spending and then jointly deciding how to use it. And you know this power, this idea of collective strength and you know collective sort of effort in funding something and then tracking it. Um, also, because we realized that a lot of the organizations that did most of the great work were really small. And funders Mm -hmm. would never really know about them or they were not, you know, sexy, whatever. So, you know, we identified a a model that was a model that was very successful in many states. And it was a model that became sort of like a quarterback for smaller community organizations and that have three big pillars. One is a pillar around advocacy. Really advancing knowledge of who we are as a community and ensuring that diversity of our voices and experiences, you know, were in the forefront of everything that we did. Um, understanding mm-hmm. that engagement and civic participation and advocacy, it's something we all do you know, in different ways, at different moments, and it looks different, but we'll do it. Um, the second pillar was around capacity building, ensuring our organizations are effective and efficient um, and doing the best they can. Uh, and the third pillar was around economic opportunity, actually raising money, And giving it back to the community Um, Mm -hmm. and so we incorporated in 2017 with these three pillars that we still maintain uh, and we have grown really fast uh, and we have been i believe successful because we have been able to recognize like i said not only the diversity but the really interesting landscape in the state that we live in and learning from the contributions and the work done by the civil rights movement, um, and by other civil rights leaders that had advanced the rights that we have today, uh, in different ways. So that's mm-hmm. sort of you know our connection in our story.
0: Do you think, in light of uh, in right in light of the recent election, maybe there's been? Uh, I know that part of the struggle for justice in the United States, immigrants have always been a major part of it, and their justice is as tied up in, <laughs> in the story as anyone else's. Um, do you feel like in the recent election, there may be some more recognition being placed on that? Or do you feel like there's any sort of tide change that's happened recently?
2: I think that yes, I'm an optimistic, right? I wouldn't be doing this this <laughs> this work if I wasn't, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I do think that, uh, and I don't know if you'll uh, watch recently this movie *Judas* and uh, *The Black Messiah*. Yeah.
0: A couple oh, I need to.
2: Yeah. Okay, I know you like films, so you know movies, <laughs> but you know there is a quote where um, Fred Hampton says you know, you don't fight fire with fire. You don't fight racism with more racism. You fight racism with solidarity. Mm -hmm. And so that space of solidarity, that this is the way that we change things is really at the core of, you know, how we do our work, how we intend to do our work too. Um, But also recognizing that, you know, for us to be part of that solidarity movement, we need to learn from what, got us here. So that is something that I think the last election, in particular, the you know, run of election, uh, made clear It's all of us together,
1: working mm-hmm.
2: together, right? Uh, and being together in our fights, but also in our victories, in our wins, yeah. that moves things forward. Um, and when you look at what it meant, for example, the presidential election at the local level, at the state level, it's clear to me that the fact that the two biggest counties with 287G agreements, right, Gwinnett and Cobb County, had for the first time black sheriffs, and those black sheriffs won, on a platform that was against 287G agreement Mm -hmm. that predominantly (laughs) affect Latinos, and they actually carry on their their promises. And they said, you know what, yes, I'm gonna do right by you guys.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, it
2: was huge. And and so for people like me, immigrants, English learners, that, you know, it took me like 10 years to become a citizen because I just didn't think it made a difference, Mm
1: -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. This is
2: my own story for me to see how, wow, it is communities together putting these people in office. You know, these sheriffs in office recognizing that they serve various, you know, communities, and you know, upholding their promises because that's what you do, right? That's yeah. what you should do. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's good politics, but it's also like good pe- what good people do, right? Um, comes full circle, you know, coming full circle. It's 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 huge. Well, let's talk about heroes for you in your work. And you've
0: mentioned like reading a lot back into the civil rights movement. Have you found any heroes or voices that you treasure particularly as you do your own really significant work in this time?
2: I think my realization is that everybody, so many people has had, you know, so many important roles advancing the movement um not just martin luther king not just malcolm x not just you know so and so which are the the ones that we know um but the fact that you know youth movements have been leading change not only in this country but all over the world right they are the ones that are you know setting the agenda and pushing us older people i mean i'm you know, my, my kids think I'm older and I am, <laughs> uh, you know, pushing us to be, you know, more brave, more courageous, to actually be bold and to get into fights that not only because we can win them, because this is not why we we, we fight things, but because they are right. It's the right thing to do. Right. This is we should all strive to be better. Um, I think that's so, you know, I don't really have necessarily heroes. Um mm-hmm i am a great admirer though of writers mm. that are able to show to show me in the writing how the system works mm. like that's what i admire uh yeah. most the fact that i can read i brought here so that you see it's true it's all like old mm. isabel oh, all of seven. right <laughs> The fact that I read this and and I can completely change the way I see the migration, right mm, of, yeah. of, of, of black folks, like it's not that because you know some folks went to New York that they became you know great musicians or wonderful um, you know leaders or it's because they were always that person. They were always that person. They were just not allowed to be their full selves while they were in the South because of Jim Crow. You know, the fact. And then, look, I brought my other one that is also one of my favorites. Have you all read this book? Hmm. Okay. Where Petri meets Sweet Auburn. I want to send you guys this thing. Like, you have to read this book to understand Atlanta.
1: Oh, wow. You have to read this book
2: to understand Atlanta the names of the people making the rules are still the same families. Are still the same names. Are still the same people in the boardrooms, in the corporations. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so this book, for example, follows these two families. Um, Ivan Allen Jr. Right. Um, and then. Um, you know, the Dobbs family. And so you have the Allen family living in Buckhead, a white family, you know, from the aristocracy of Jordan. And then you have the Dobbs family, right? Uh, which is the aristocracy of the black community and how their lives were in parallel, living completely different, the opportunities that they were afforded and, you know, what they were able to accomplish, you know, ending in, you know, Jane, you know, manner, um. Jackson Jr., of course, the first black mayor of Atlanta, coming from this long lineage of leaders and, you know, folks with just deep love, you know, for their own community and commitment. Uh, and likewise, right, these white family, but how their journeys were so different and, and they're just two families. So I cannot think that they were unique.
1: Yeah. You know, I
2: think that everybody had to do their own piece and they were millions and hundreds of families that were living in parallel that got us to where we are, which is yeah. not a city that's too busy to hate because hate lives everywhere too. So I'm going to buy you guys this. Okay. I'm gonna Cause you, you, I, you are yeah, so good.
1: I'm very excited to read that.
2: <laughs> I will
0: say I've lived. So I've lived in a lot of places before Atlanta. I lived in, uh, Chicago as well before I moved here. And I think that the, uh, Wilkerson's book, the warmth of other Suns, was just like, gave me a, gave me a vision of this, how this migration connected mm-hmm. the two places. Like I had been living in Georgia for a while. I was like, Chicago has its distinct personality and culture too. But I was like, really interested on how the migration happened along certain lines and how that how Chicago, which is intensely segregated, mm-hmm. um, how they were inhospitable when the Great Migration happened. And that's how a lot of, how the, you know, the Dan Ryan Expressway was shaped and stuff.
2: And and, and a piece of that book, like a part of that book that was just incredibly insightful for me was the worst, the worst riots, right, that killed black people in Chicago and I believe it was Chicago were incited by immigrants Mm. because immigrants like me were non-black and we actually killed the most people because we were afraid that they were going to take away our factory jobs. Mm. Right. And then, you know, white immigrants too and Polish immigrants and, you know, Italian immigrants. So, but it's this, you know, pitting people against each other for, the very few scraps at the very bottom because and because when we do that we can't see that there is all of this wealth above us we just have to fight with each other so recognizing those patterns seeing the role that we play in perpetuating that system is just very important for me as you know we do we do this work because we can't continue to uphold those systems you know those narratives and you know those labels that we keep using against each other
0: yeah, and I have kind of a going interest in book list of uh, stories of migration. Uh, do you have any other books you've read on that topic that have really been uh, interesting or good storytelling or that you could recommend?
2: Yes, there's lots of stories. And I uh, you know, I read a lot about women experiences, like I share. So, A House in Mango Street, and I'm Not Your Perfect uh, Mexican Girl. It's also a good one. Uh, there's uh-huh. another... I, there's, like, so many of them around yeah. the experiences of, you know, women migrating and, and what's expected, expected of us. And then Anything by Junot Diaz I think is fascinating. Junot uh, Diaz is one of my favorite writers, not necessarily my favorite person. Yeah. He writes beautiful. Um, yeah. So there is this book called um, Oscar Wow, the story of Oscar Wow. That I really love, and it's called Oscar Wow because it's this Dominican immigrant trying to say Oscar Wilde, oh, wow. <laughs> can pronounce it yeah. <laughs> right because of the accent, so it's Oscar Wilde. Um, oh, Wow. It's just fabulous, and you are able to feel so much pain in this very complex sort of emotion. Mm. Um, you know, while you read the page and the longing of being halfway, like your heart and your mind is always halfway, you know, across somewhere, right? Like I, I haven't seen my mom in like over a year. And, you know, my I, I sent her some N95 mask via a little, you know, Peruvian courier that we have. Oh. And it's my yeah. first time sending it. And I was like, and so this woman sent me a picture of my brother and I almost broke down because I realized I hadn't actually seen his full body in so long. I had seen his face a little bit to be Zoom, but nobody puts the zoom and then you stand yeah. up and you're able to see the person in like a whole person.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, when you think about immigration, you're always half empty.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yes. I grew up in the Philippines. And so I went, you know, I wasn't, when I grew up there, I wasn't reading Filipino literature. Um, and I didn't realize I would be so nostalgic for it when I left. Mm, and so wow. it was interesting. I went on a trip back and this is leading into a question, but I went on a trip back and all of a sudden I was like a voraciously looking for Filipino authors or people who were writing the Filipino experience or people who could write it with, integrity do you have something that sort of serves that part of your home that's uh that part of your heart that's still in peru is there something you go back to or an author or authors you revisit to connect with that
2: no a lot of the authors that i know from peru are angry men
0: Uh uh-huh
2: and it's very depressing and it's it's very painful to read some of the stories Um, so I'm, I'm more into like the intellectual curiosity of, you know, Chinese writers about women. That's like, that's where I get my (laughs) fix, you know, that's where I get my fix. And it's like more interesting to me, but listen, I didn't know about the Philippines. Is it true that the best mangoes are in Philippines?
0: Yeah, I was. I told my wife when we first got when we first got married. I went to the produce section in Kroger, and I was like, "We have more mangoes in the Philippines than you have fruit in your entire produce sections here." And you pick them off the trees, and there's like apple mangoes. Yeah, sorry, I don't want to start talking about mangoes. It's my favorite not- food.
2: It's important to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, I did, and you know, I think like we settled on. Buford Highway, on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's really different from the Philippines, but uh, there was a sense of it. Fe- it feels a lot more like home to me than anywhere else in Atlanta. <laughs> than like Lawrenceville or yeah. Snellville, or I've I've lived other places in Georgia too. And I just I love Buford Highway. I love the yeah the diversity of this community and the the. Um, I think it's like one of the last places where you have, where I get a sense of real neighborhood. <laughs> yes, so, I think you're right. Yeah. So, what what brought you to Georgia? You know, you've had a you've lived in China. What what brought you here?
2: My husband. Uh, we were in a long distance relationship for a long time, and I got really impatient, and <laughs> I I was like, I don't know. We hadn't really been together, at, like physically, like in the same place um, for more than I think 11 years, in like th- 11 days in three years. Like it was really wow. crazy. So I said, um, i will just gonna come visit and stay for like three months because that was like my visa, what allow my visa. And I came and I actually came to Chicago first. And okay. And- I had never seen snow in my life. <laughs> I came down the airplane yeah. looking good, good, it, like high heels, my suit, <laughs> and there was like one of the worst uh snowstorms, and I you know it was terrible, it was terrible I, yeah. I don't know what I was thinking um, <laughs> and I basically stayed there for three months and then I asked my husband like, okay, three months up, like what are we doing? He said, I need to think about it, so I left not without spreading my perfume all over his bed and clothes (laughs) and everything so that he would not get rid of me. Um, And then he called me back. So I came back and got married (laughs) and Uh, I'm here.
0: Nice. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, I, I, when I lived in Chicago, it was, there were like three, I left Chicago in three inches of unplowed snow. Mm. And I think it was like in the, Low 20s to mid 20s, and we drove through the night to move here to Georgia. And we get here, and it's 55 and sunny. And I was like, I'm staying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but Georgia has a reputation. I don't know, this kind of brings us around to the recent election, but Georgia has a reputation um, for being. I mean, well-earned for its problems with race, like racial tension or racial oppression is, I guess, a better word for it. I found that moving here from Chicago, though, that people were ready to mix and relate with each other a lot more than they were in Chicago. Like, just very segmented neighborhoods. Like, this is where you go if you're Irish. This is where you go if you're Latinx. This is where you go, you know. Um And I think one of the things that appeals about Georgia is there's there's a lot of mixing and interacting that I think is um, probably valuable for everybody. And with you were mentioning this with the recent election too, you saw this sort of like really effective coalition building for better politics and I think as a as a person who had a really difficult time under the Trump presidency. I'll go ahead and say it wasn't easy. <laughs> I'm really grateful for all the different kinds of people that came out to the polls. And yeah. I'm really grateful that we were able together to, you know, choose a better future. Did you see, like, did you see a lot of new uh, voter engagement? I know you sort of work in that arena.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that, you know, the Latinx community in Georgia is a very young, the voting community is also a very young community because, you know, a third of our communities under 18 and 98% of those are American citizens. So they don't have to naturalize like me. They don't have to go through that process. Once you turn 18, you can vote, you can register to vote. So I can tell you, I don't have the statistics from the runoff yet, but I can tell you that from the presidential election, 48 percent of latinos that voted in the presidential election in 2020 had not voted in 2016. 48 wow. percent is huge wow. it's half wow. of our community right? mm-hmm. wow. um i can tell you too that historically latino community had turned out to vote between 10 30 percent in elections because it's hard to feel engaged when you don't feel that the candidates are going to deliver on their promises yeah. or reflect your priorities. And, and historically, yeah. very few have, right? Yeah. So um, between ten and you know thirty percent, when you look at presidential elections, some counties like Winnet, the Latino turnout was seventy-five percent. It's huge. Yeah historic. And then for runoff turnout, uh, I know Latinos and, and in general other communities to turn out around 70 to 78% to general election. So still very much historic. I mean, you know, under general election, which is understandable too, um, but very much historic. So it's, um, It was really interesting, and it was, I think, clear, too, when we were working in general election. And and our work is nonpartisan, right? We focus on education and turnout, and people can vote for whoever they want to vote. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we were in general election, we were at the polls. I was actually um, at the Doraville uh, working, Doraville uh, precinct location working all the day of the election. And I would tell you that out of all the folks that we helped provide some support on the polls, you know, with interpretation or advocacy, not even one person knew about the senators that were on the race. So between general election and runoff. There was so much work that had to be put in place for people to educate why this is even an important election. And who what are the platforms of these senators and why it's important that yeah. you vote? Because for the first time, Georgia gets to decide the balance, right? On on the Senate. And and what could that mean for the over five hundred bills that were pending on the Senate yeah. to be passed? 500, yeah. right? Everything from COVID relief to, you know, business, to language, to, you know, reproductive health, to faith, to freedom, all kinds of mm-hmm. things. So um, it was fascinating. I mean, it almost killed us, but, you know, people showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what matters
0: at the end. <laughs> so what are... So after you've been super busy, obviously, with getting people out to vote and informing them of what's at stake. So what are the for the LCF Georgia? What are the next sort of priorities in the next season of your work?
2: So right now we are, you know, following the legislative session. Right, Georgia has a part-time legislature, which means that you know, in in three months, they cram all kinds of bills. And there are already over twenty bills that are um, limiting voting rights uh, for all communities, not only the Latinx communities. So we do have our legislative priorities that are around voting rights, but also accessibility of healthcare and the COVID vaccine. Um, The fact that a multilingual Georgia, we believe, is an asset and is an economic imperative to the state, especially when you know that the second largest partner in the state is Mexico don't you want people that speak the language of the largest partner, right? In the (laughs) first one, it's China, by the way. So multilingual Georgia is the future, Um, as well as access to, you know, in-state education. Uh, Once the legislature is over, then we will move to um, redistricting, which if you think census is a tactic, right, to get representation and visibility, and then you think of elections as a tactic to get political influence and direction, Mm -hmm. redistricting is the way the rules of the game are made right uh you can cut you know 10 homes in six different ways and each way you cut them you know your home may have more or less power to determine what kind of person you get to elect right and what's the possibility of someone like me or like you guys to be elected Mm -hmm. because it depends on how you know those 10 um, homes are, are. So we're going to be working on that. And then uh, still, of course, health and wellness, it's its a priority. We know that um, the impact of, of the pandemic are really, are going to be long lasting. And, and we don't even know uh, how they look. I mean, mental health issues, right? Um, education issues um, are just going to be here for a long, long time. And so focusing on making sure that you know, people are well so that they can go to work and they can provide for their kids and they can be present. Um, It's a priority for us.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up about, um, because one thing we were were, were talking about, you know, the mobilization and the fact that like voting has, has just jumped so much this past year. It's all something that I feel like when you hear about it, it's something so worth celebrating. You know, it's such a wonderful thing that has happened. But then to see our, you know, especially in Georgia, but other parts of the U.S. where it's, where something that we in my mind it's like a success like more voting equals success it's a great thing but then to see congress like be, you know their reaction seems to be trying to you know reduce voting you know reduce all those the new bills that have popped up um what are some ways especially just people maybe listening to this podcast or people that are concerned about these these bills that are that are coming up how how can people um Maybe participate in that advocacy and kind of become more involved and kind of really speak out um, about these uh, these bills.
2: Yeah, it's a great question because uh, people need to understand that at every single sort of point in the path from a bill to become a law, you know, people can keep their representatives accountable. You know, folks that are at the Capitol work for us. We don't work for them. We elect them so they can work for us. So they can, you know, people, anybody with documents, without documents, you know, can email, call, you know, and even go to the Capitol. The offices are public. So you can go to the Coverdell building called Club and find and ask, you know, send a letter and tell your representative, your Senator, that this creates opportunities or not for your community. Why do you think this is a good idea? And quite frankly, legislators like to hear from their constituents. Mm -hmm. They like to hear from it, especially if you are in South Georgia or North Georgia or in a place far away from the capital, because it's very, very rare that people take the time. And by the way, this is all by design. I have no doubt that the people, you know, living more far away, don't have public transportation and are poor and are not uh, getting paid to take time off to advocate. Right. So they are further from where decisions are made. Right. So. If you show up and you say, I am your constituent and I don't think you should do this. And if you do, I'm not going to vote for you. Mm-hmm. They really listen to you. And if you ever go to the building and you're in the um, elevators, you'll hear the staffing members talking, oh, man, I'm so overwhelmed. Like, I got 38 calls today. These people are driving me crazy. It really works.
1: <laughs>
0: it
2: really works. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I started. Call, I started calling, and there was all there was all this fear about it at first. I was like, "Oh, it's such yeah. an intimate." And I had a guy who used to work for, as an aide. Um, I forget for what for, but he was saying, he was saying, you know, the thing that really like it disrupts the workday, mm. it makes a mark. This it affects the temperature of an office. You just call in and say, "I'm a constituent." this is what I hope they're doing. And then they make a note of it. It's super easy to do. And it has a pretty good, I was, I was surprised to hear him say that's the, that has a pretty big impact. Um, it
2: does. And, and, and you know, um, so most of the times you will get a voicemail and then we'll make sure that all those voicemails are filled. And so <laughs> then when they actually cannot do work because someone is going to say, look, I can't leave your voicemail to move this bill. They'll have to listen to you. You know? Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Well, let's uh I I would like to ask for this is a sort of surprise question, but what's <laughs> what is one book on your bookshelf that our read our listeners should all read? What's one that you would recommend? You've recommended The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson, which we heartily second that one. Yeah. And then um
2: where peach tree meets sweet auburn that I told you I'm going to buy for you.
0: Okay. Where peach both tree, of you,
2: both of you. So many good books. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I actually, I'll, um, I think animal vegetable miracle. It's huge because we have to eat to be alive. Um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's just incredible. Um, I think Julie Chang's Wild Swans, uh, which is this book about the evolution of women in China has also been, I think, foundational to understand that talent is given equally, but opportunities are not. And quite frankly, also the, the role of the government in creating those opportunities for human beings to develop and grow and attain and you know work to attain their aspirations whatever they are you know you want to become a phd uh, you know filmmaker a radio podcast host you know whatever you want to do you know how can the government create that space for you to be that right mm-hmm. um and how it looks when it doesn't, uh, yeah. you know, especially for women, because, you know, I'm yeah. a, as a woman. So to me, that's um, those are really big books in my life.
1: As we kind of near the end of the episode, we always kind of like to go around and um, ask, like, is there anything like right now you're in the middle of reading that you're really enjoying and you'd want to recommend?
2: I am rereading this one, uh, Peachtree Meets Sweet Auburn, I think for the third time, because every time I read it, I find something new um, mm-hmm. and interesting. Um I am my husband is finishing uh, Iram X Kenji the How to be an anti-racist oh,
1: yeah
2: and and I'm really interested in that one um, so I'm looking forward to reading that one after he finishes um, and then I have this other one um, that I'm gonna start reading which is Atlanta the Civil Rights movement but it's a photo book okay that actually a a professor put together. So if you read like when Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn, this is sort of like the same story, but this is in letters and this Mm -hmm. is the same book in photos. And what I love about it is that a lot of the spaces where, you know, people gather to ask for, you know, better housing or better work opportunities is in spaces in downtown Atlanta, that you can go any day Mm -hmm. so one is for example the hurt park which is right next to where we have our building Mm -hmm. and every time i walk to my office it's a reminder of this huge legacy of civil courage right that people had in this same space and have been having for decades and the fact that you know not much has changed i mean um so to me it's a reminder, you know, this is this is my turn to continue the work and to, you know, offer a different shade of how it looks. Um, because it's the same work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. How about you, Tim? Anything you're working on? Yeah, so I, I brought a couple over one, I just started, and I know we brought up um uh Judas and the Black Messiah a little bit ago, but I'm reading this book. I found and I've had like sitting on my shelf for like a year or so now. It's called uh, This Side of Glory: The Autobiography of David Hilliard and the Story of the Black Panther Party." And it's oh, how cool! Actually, found at uh, Atlanta Vintage Books, and I just I I was got really excited about it. Um, the the this the author David Hilliard he was the uh, chief of staff for the Black Panther Party, I think, when they kind of formed, and so he wasn't like a, at the forefront, or wasn't kind of like one of the you know notable figures as far as like someone you'd look to for you know like the leaders of the movement, but he still was really, really did a lot of the the legwork. He was behind the scenes a lot. And so it's kind of his story, but then also the Black Panther Party, um, because I feel like Black Panther, you know, it's one of those things I blame part of it on, you know, education, <laughs> part of it on up, growing up white, you know, but, you know, Black Panther Party for the longest time were kind of, I don't know if I had a strong opinion of it, but any time it came up, it was always like, they were kind of like the, the a version of like the KKK in some way, you know, which is obviously very false. Um, and so just over the last, you know, however many years, kind of going back through my own sort of history of like what I grew up kind of thinking, even if I didn't really feel like I had a formed opinion, but just kind of the um, just the messages that you just keep kind of being bombarded by and kind of evaluating those and seeing, um, you know, kind of scrutinizing like kind of what you learn and dismantling a lot of that. That's been... Something, especially with the Black Party, over the last several years, I've been doing a lot of, and so I'm really. I just started, so I can't really say what I think of it, but but I'm really really excited about this one. Um, and then I both of these I'm just starting, but um, there uh, a poet that I really love, Victoria Chang. This is ooh, ooh I don't. I want to say your second. It may not. Oh gosh, it might not be your second book. Um, I read recently uh, this poetry collection called Barbie Chang by her, and it, it was fan. It was amazing. It was brilliant. I mean, it was just such like this, as far as like contemporary poetry, um, she brought in a lot of just Asian American experience, but then also at the same time dealing with illnesses in her family with her parents. Um, And it was just a beautiful collection. So I literally just got this like two days ago from the library, and I'm so excited to read it. So... Ah, uh, yeah, Victoria Chang. If you see anything of hers, I highly, I can't recommend it enough. It's amazing. I'm writing so, it down. Yeah, yeah, she is. She is well, wonderful. This one I'm reading. I didn't even think I mentioned. It's called Obit, um, and so it's just ah, uh, yeah. But I love her. She's amazing. What about you, Ian?
0: I'm a big fan of a translator, scholar, poet Anne Carson, um, and she does. She works a lot with ancient Greek literature, so she's done like. Uh, fragments of Sappho's poetry and, um, you know, a great author in her own right. But I love the way she pays attention to some particularities of old Greek plays that other translators will miss. And she pays attention to, for example, the experiences, perspectives, and emotions of women in the plays, um, the nuances of uh Of the interactions between the gods and the mortals and the stories and so she did this uh, collection of five of Euripides plays, which Euripides is like the most disturbed um, and therefore interesting I't of of like the ancient Greek uh, tragedy writers so, there's this collection called Grief Lessons and it's Anne Carson writes these really brilliant introductions and then translates four of uh, Euripides' plays. I read one, uh, I got into that because I read one of hers called Knox where she's grieving grieving the loss of her brother and trying to like uh, unearth what she could of his life and as she's doing it, she talks about uh, the historian's impulse, the translator's impulse, and then ties that together with a really personal grief. And I was just I was in, wow. in tears when I was reading it. So yeah, I'm on an Ann Carson kick right now, but uh and the, she said of translation, she said the translator's job is to find where the shadow of the text falls across our times. And I just wow. thought that was like kind of wow.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Such a good thought. So I read a lot of stuff in translation. I read a lot of stuff in translation. So it's kind of nice to think about uh, the art that gets someone else's uh, like uh, something written in another context, cultural context to me. There's an art that mediates that. And I really like to think about that. So that's what I've been, been reading. Well, we want to say thanks to everyone who joined us and who listened to this. Gigi, we have so many great uh, book recommendations. And when we post this episode, we're going to also post a list of uh, the books that we talked about here so that uh, people who hear about them in our conversation uh, can go uh, find them themselves. Also, go check out lcfgeorgia.org to find out more about Gigi's uh wonderful work and uh we know the impact of your work has been felt in our community we know it's been felt in uh in wider georgia and yeah. uh nationally as well so we're really thankful for it and thanks for taking the time to talk with us about books today yeah thank you so thank much thank you
2: so much thank you for inviting me it's so cool
0: <laughs> all right have a good week everybody we'll catch you on the next episode